The scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 42. Uh, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all the time, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls the deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is the word of the Lord. The words that Nate just read are obviously the words of a devoted follower of God. They're the words of a very skilled songwriter. Uh, They are words that the church has declared are the inspired words of God, words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yet I also think they're the words of a man who who seemed to be deeply depressed. We often don't think of those going together. And I don't think that's an uncommon state, that depression. I think all of us at some time in our life have known it or have known people we care about going through it. Listen to these words. Unbearably miserable and seemingly incapable of any kind of joy or enthusiasm. Everything, every thought, word, movement was an effort. Everything that was once sparkling was now flat. I seemed to myself to be dull, boring, inadequate, thick-brained, unlit, unresponsive, chill-skinned, bloodless, and sparrow-drab. Those are the words of Kay Redfield Jameson in her book, um, An Unquiet Mind. Wonderfully written book talking about her own struggles and depression being part of that struggle. We we use depression, the word depressed or depressing a lot of times in these very kind of light ways. We we talk about, you know, today is kind of a depressing day. The weather is kind of depressing. Uh, Whenever I play music in the car, my wife's constant refrain is, your music makes me depressed. Uh, By that, she doesn't mean somehow she's clinically depressed. By that, she simply means, your music I find kind of a downer. It's a little bit, puts me down. It's kind of a little bit sad today. The weather's a little miserable. But usually when we talk about depression, we're talking about something much deeper than that. Something that's not just a little bit sad, a little bit miserable, a little bit hard. Uh, One of those songwriters, singers that my wife says is depressing would be Dar Williams. Um, she writes in one of her songs about her own depression. It felt like a winter machine that you go through and then you catch your breath and winter starts again and everyone else is springbound. She goes on and writes, then when I chose to live, there was no joy. It's just a line I crossed. 
It wasn't worth, I wasn't worth the pain my death would cost. So I was not lost or found. That's more than a momentary sadness. Uh, a book I love is by Christian psychologist Richard Winter. It's called When Life Goes Dark. It's a, if you're struggling with depression or know someone's struggling with depression, it's a book I would highly recommend. Very well written, I think very thoughtful. In it, he quotes a Scottish pastor of 200 years ago, and quickly you recognize this is not a new problem. As he talks about people he's dealing with 200 years ago, you hear words that sound awful familiar to the words we hear today. So It's a long quote, so I'm going to put it up here so you can read along with me. A man so depressed is utterly unable to exercise joy or take comfort in anything. He's always displeased and discontented with himself. His thoughts, for the most part, are turned in upon himself. He commonly gives himself up to idleness, either lying in bed or sitting unprofitably by himself. Daily harassed with fears of want, poverty, and misery to himself and to his family, he is weary of company and is much addicted to solitude. His thoughts are commonly all perplexed, like those of a man who is in a labyrinth or a pathless wilderness. He can no more cease to muse on that which is already the subject of his thoughts than a man afflicted with a violent toothache can forbear at the time to think of his, not to think of his pain. Abraham Lincoln talked about what he called melancholy, a common term that used to be used to talk about what we today would call depression. Here are words that he wrote to a friend. He said, I'm now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Again, not words of happy people. Not words of people who are saying, I'm just having a kind of a hard day. Something much deeper. And that's a a problem that, again, many people struggle with. Many people here today struggle with or have people they love who are struggling with. Depression takes a lot of forms, a lot of different levels of severity. The cause is hard to explain. It's sometimes hard to define why, what it's about. Yet we try sometimes to make it sound easy. Uh, one of the problems is we often try to make it very simple. It's just a physical problem. It's just a psychological problem. It's just a relational problem. Or in the church so often, it's just a spiritual problem. If spiritually you could figure things out, you would never struggle with depression. You'd be okay. It does seem like sometimes there are contributing factors, situational factors. Things like a traumatic event will happen in someone's life that's a contributor. A transition in life of some kind, a a deep loss, oftentimes are contributors to people's depression. But it's hard to say that those alone are the cause. Because many times people go through those, the same people will go through those same things and not feel depressed. But sometimes deep depression comes out of it. We also know that people struggle with depression. Uh, there are some people who are more prone to it than others are. If you have a family history of people in your family have been depressed and struggle with depression, we know you are more likely to struggle with it. So it seems there are internal factors that contribute to it, external situational factors that contribute to it. Again, I say all this to say this is a complex problem. It's one that needs more than just simple, easy answers. And the people struggling with it will tell you that. They would love to find a simple answer. But oftentimes there is no simple, easy answer that solves every problem that they're going through. As I've said, it's not just a sad feeling or a miserable feeling. Matter of fact, many who are struggling with depression talk about an absence of feeling. 
It's not necessarily they feel sad or feel bad. They just don't feel. Many times they'll talk about feeling very empty. And one of the common things I'll hear is people talking about just feeling disconnected, feeling alone. Not that there aren't people around and not that they don't even believe God is there. But I just don't feel this ability to connect to those people in my life. I feel somehow isolated and misunderstood and like I have to be on my own. And I don't feel like I can really connect to God. Now, I want to warn you, you may have caught this. This is not going to be your uplifting sermon today. Because uh, this really isn't an uplifting psalm in a lot of ways. It's a hard psalm. Um, for someone to be diagnosed with a major depressive episode, if you go to see a counselor or psychologist, for them to diagnose you, there are certain symptoms they need to find. Uh, they need to find a grouping of certain symptoms before they can technically give you that diagnosis. Um, the two major symptoms are a depressed mood and a loss of interest or pleasure in things. But there is a long list of other things, changes in appetite and body weight, changes in sleep patterns, psychomotor retardation or agitation, fatigue and low energy, feelings of worthlessness and guilt, inability to concentrate or make decisions, recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. And to give you that diagnosis of a major depressive episode, they have to find those symptoms for really about every day for two weeks or more. So again, not just a moment, not just a bad day, not just feeling a little down. This is something hard that people go through. A lonely place. The sad thing is, it's an incredibly common struggle. A lot of people going through it. The World Health Organization has predicted that within 20 years, more people will be affected by depression than any other health problem. Uh, worldwide, it is a rapidly growing problem. Women are said to suffer from depression more than men. I think they do. Uh, they think that may be due to some hormonal factors or things like that. It used to say that women were twice as likely to be depressed as men. They've kind of changed those numbers over the years because they've decided that men are just a whole lot slower to say they're depressed or report it to someone or go to a doctor or counselor. But they would still say women probably more often than men. But the truth is both struggle with it an awful lot. In 2012, an estimated 16 million adults age 18 or older in the U.S. had at least one major depressive episode during the past year. Major depressive. Those symptoms I described, two weeks or more every day. Since 1990, adult rates of depression and anxiety have tripled in the United States. Antidepressants are now the most commonly prescribed group of drugs in America and growing throughout the world. Again, it's a problem that affects people of all walks of life. It's a very difficult thing to deal with. And if you look at Scripture, I think you'll find many biblical characters struggling with what we today would call depression. Didn't use the term then, but I think the symptoms you'll find are pretty much what we would today call depression. You'll find it among people like Moses and Job, Elijah, Jeremiah, Jonah, maybe Naomi, King David, and even Paul. And I say all that to say that today, one of the struggles with depression in the church, for people talking about their battles with depression and seeking help, is that so often we feel it is such a shameful thing. We feel it as something embarrassing that we need to hide and cover up. It's a sign of being spiritually weak and immature if you feel depressed. Because if you really had faith in God, if you really believed, you would never have depression. You'd be a person always filled with joy, right? Here are some people who have been very honest over the, over the years in the church about their own personal struggles with depression. St. Augustine, St. Ignatius, Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, Charles Spurgeon, even more recently, Henry Nouwen, 
People have been very honest about deep, deep struggles with depression, what we'd call depression today. If we have to be more spiritually mature than that list of people, we're in trouble. Yet those people struggle with depression. Those people struggled with these deep, dark times that they just couldn't shake. Complex things. So as I come to Psalm 42 and 43 today, my hope is not to give you a simple answer to solve depression. It's not, let's look at this, these two Psalms, and here's your three steps, and you will not be depressed anymore. Because I don't think that's what the psalmist is trying to do at all. Uh, I don't think he's offering that. I don't think it's meant to be offered, out of, especially out of these psalms. I do think people are strong with depression. There's a lot of things you ought to consider. I think you ought to seek medical help. I think that you ought to consider counseling. I think at times you ought to consider medications. I think those are all wise things to do. We are physical beings, psychological beings, relational beings, spiritual beings. But those aren't all separated into clean little categories. They all overlap. They're all blended together. We are people that every single bit of us and the world around us grieves under the weight of sin, groans for that day that Christ will set all things right. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, everything struggles. And it is right to seek help in all those areas. There's nothing wrong with doing that. It's a complex thing. But I do strongly want to say today, as we approach these passages, that I think Scripture has deep, meaningful things to offer to us as we walk through some of the darkest and hardest, loneliest places of life in this world. It has much that we need, every single one of us, whether you'd say you've struggled with depression or not. We all know what it is to walk through times of discontent, of hard times. We know what it is like the psalmist to be someone who is deeply thirsty, someone who's downcast. Scripture has much, I think, to offer to us as we walk through that. So a couple of things I want to say about this psalm before, these psalms before we dig in. One thing is I'm going to approach them like one psalm, and that's actually a pretty common thing. And many Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts, 42nd and 43rd Psalm, are treated as just one psalm. Uh, that's because they carry a lot of similar words and phrases throughout. It's also because there, there are five books of the psalms, five sections. Psalm 42 starts the second book. And within that second book, every psalm has an introductory title except for two, Psalm 43 and Psalm 71. Every other one has an introductory title, which again lends you to believe that maybe it's because this isn't the start of something new. This is just a continuation of the psalm before it. So I'm going to treat them as one psalm. Another thing, they're attributed to the sons of Korah. Uh, Levites, the sons of Korah, we don't know a lot about, except they were Levites that were employed in the performance of the temple music. So as we dig into the psalm, Psalm 42, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles there because I'm going to bounce around between these two a lot. If you got your Bibles with you, I think it'd be good to kind of follow along, uh, see if you can track with me. First thing, the psalmist immediately digs in and tells us something about his personal condition. Uh, the song, and wanted Doobie to, to have it in the worship today, is As the Deer Pants. I love that song and I love the words. They're words right out of Psalm 42. But it's interesting, the music in that, in that song, doesn't it feel kind of peaceful and wonderful and nice and relaxing? It's kind of music that makes you think of, you know, it's a deer walking through a lush forest and he stops to drink from a bubbling brook, you know. The music kind of makes the words mean that. I don't think that's really where those words are meant to go, though. It might be more appropriately 
uh, set to like uh, some kind of modern jazz or something, something frenetic and desperate. And that might be actually better music to put it to, because I think that's what's going on here. He's talking about a deer that pants for the water. A deer, he's, he is a person in an arid desert climate. He's a person who I'm sure understood what thirst was, knew how desperately you could be thirsty. Remember once years ago, uh, when I was a youth pastor leading a group on an outward bound trip in Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. And the, it was one of these backpack on your back. My wife described it as you strap your dresser on your back and walk upstairs all day. That was her thought of the trip. Uh, but you were hiking hard and it was, you know, 90 degree days and it was a drought that summer. And so the guides, each place that they took us to along the hike that they thought we would find water, we didn't. So one day we just kept going and going and going. We'd gone hours. We'd run out of water a long time ago, couldn't find any more. And they were getting pretty worried. And they were telling me, we, we may have to abandon our hike and go find public areas to get some water because these kids are going to start passing out if we don't do something. And I remember thinking when they told me that, please do. I would like some water. Uh, they pass out or not, I'm going to pass out. Uh, and it was, you know, thirst. Understood a little bit of what thirst was. I'm sure I don't even begin to understand the kind of thirst that someone like this psalmist understood. Truly what it is to be on the edge of death. And when he talks about this deer panning for water, I think he understood what it was to be thirsty. Desperate. I'm not going to make it. And he says, like that deer, God, I am desperate to connect to you, to see you, to feel your presence, to know that you're here. Because right now he couldn't and he needed to. He goes on with some other words to describe what he was feeling. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. Verse 6, my soul is downcast within me. Verse 7, he talks about waves and breakers have swept over me. Some say those waves are God's blessing. It's very possible the waves are actually talking about the hardship of life that is rolling over him. In verse 10, he says, my bones suffer mortal agony. I talk with people who are struggling with depression often. It's a phrase I'll hear. I can feel it in my joints. I can feel it in my bones. It just aches. I just hurt uh, because I'm so depressed. 43 verse 2. He says, why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by my enemy? This is a man who says he's alone. He's worn out. He's taunted. He's confused. He's overwhelmed. He even feels physical pain. Again, this isn't just having a bad day. This is something that goes much deeper. And what's interesting in the psalm, one of the things I love, there are no signs in this psalm that this has anything to do with his sin or his lack of faith. In fact, I'd say to the contrary, we see signs all over of a man of deep, deep faith. Look in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. In verse 5, despite his downcast state, he says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Verse 6, he commits to remembering God. Verse 7, even though he feels overwhelmed by these waves sweeping over him, he still sees God's majesty and God's power in the waterfall and recognizes it. Verse 8, he clings to God at night through his prayers. In 43.3, he seeks guidance from God. But what I especially love are the terms he uses again and again as he talks about his God. He says to God, God who is his rock, his savior, his stronghold, his joy and his delight. This is not a man who doesn't believe in God and doesn't love God doesn't have a strong faith in God. Yet this is a man in a deep, dark place. We need to remember that both of those are possible. They can go together. We need to remember it for ourselves, probably more than any, but we also need to remember it for the people around us. 
that sometimes to be a person who loves God and is following him and seeking after him still means I'm going to walk through some dark, dark valleys. So what is the cause of his depression? Uh, What's the cause of this discontent of being so downcast and so thirsty? Um, I think it's a question that I get often asked by people struggling with depression. What's causing it? Tell Tell me the cause and then tell me the solution to that cause. It's so complicated. It's hard to say, yes, here's the thing. We find many contributing factors, many things we say that seems to be part of it. And these are things, maybe choices you can make and things you can deal with and things you can change. But it's hard to just identify one little thing and say that's it. And, and I think sometimes for people it's the most frustrating thing about it. The most frustrating thing is that the cause just seems so unclear, hard to nail down. Especially not only when you're dealing with yourself, but even when you're with someone you love and care about and they're struggling. Because often the demand from them is, fix it, please fix it, I desperately need help. And you want to desperately help, don't you? You want to make it better. And so what you do is you join them in their demand that it just all be fixed. And you start actually adding to the burden of you have to fix it, you have to fix it, and we have to find an easy answer. And it just seems to make it worse for all of us, and we all get frustrated. Because these things don't just often submit to some quick, simple fix. But he does have some contributing factors that he talks about that are at least a part of it. He says he's far from the community of God followers that he's known before. Listen in verse 4. I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. He's saying, I I used to know what it was probably in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem and he said, I knew what it was to be a part of an incredible community of God followers. I was in the very heart of God's people and their worship. And I loved it. I knew what joy and celebration was with them. I knew what it was to be close to God. And now he says, I can't find that. I don't have that. I don't have that community that I used to have. And not only do I not have that community of God followers, I can't really find God's presence the way I used to. I can't feel it the way I used to feel it. And he desperately is looking for it. Says that possibly he's in the area of Mount Mazar, which is really the farthest outreach of Israel. It's about as far away from Jerusalem as he could get. For some reason, he's far away from God's people, from the seat of worship. And in this place, he can't feel and sense God. And then he says... And people around me are taunting me. They're asking me every single day, where is your God? Maybe the people like many of us are who think that if you're a follower of God and if you love God, you would never really struggle with physical ailments or you'd never really struggle with emotional problems. So maybe like us, they looked at him, a man who was deeply struggling and saying, you must not be a follower of the true God or you'd be a different person, right? Life would be good and wonderful if you were a follower of the true God. So where is your God? Whatever the reason, he says, he's very alone. He's in a tough place. Um, so what does he do? What does he do in this hard place? Some situational factors, some things that he just can't change. So what does he do? Well, I don't want to give, again, here's three simple answers and it'll make everything better. It's really not what I'm trying to do. But I do want to say that I think there's some things that the psalmist does that we can learn from that we can say these are meaningful, important things to be doing as we go through those places of discontent, being downcast, doubting, being depressed. Things we could do that I think are actually helpful or meaningful things to do. First thing I put down was words. Uh, The word, words. And by that I simply meant he put words to what he was feeling. 
He was feeling some things very deeply, some very hard and negative things. And he put those words out there. He put them out there for others to hear, others to relate to, and others to be with him in. And he gave us words to express our feelings when he did that in the Psalms. I find it very important when I'm talking with people who are struggling with depression is that a lot of times I know one of the things I can do that will be helpful, not the solution, but will be helpful. If I can create a safe place and I can develop trust with them where they will simply begin to put out before me that those thoughts that are raging in their head, the thoughts that they're trying to shut off and they're trying to solve and they're trying to make go away somehow because they hate them. If I can make a safe place where they can simply talk about them they can not talk about them the way we often do in those moments. Often in those moments, if we talk about them, we talk about them with a demand, they stop. I'm trying to do it to myself, and if I'm going to let you in, I'm asking you to join me in making it stop. But if I could be with them in such a way that we move beyond the demand to let's just talk about it, let's think about it, let's feel what's going on, I know that alone, often people's mood uh, will become better. Often things become a little better. Because I'm no longer alone in the state I'm in. Someone's joined me in it. I think we're people who are made to be with others in the hard places. We're not made to be people who are just alone. And putting words to the hard things with others, I think, is vitally important for all of us to make it through life in this, what is often a hard, dark world. Words in community. Uh, So I'll often tell people I'm counseling with who are strong with depression that I think you need to find other people to talk to. I think you need to find safe people, people you trust, people you care about, and you need to be talking about the things that are going on. And you need to give them permission not to fix it. You need to let them know, I'm going to talk to you about it, but it's okay if you don't solve it. I just don't want to be alone as I go through it. And again and again, I would say that is incredibly helpful for people. doesn't solve it all, but incredibly helpful for people. I also think it's important to do as a psalmist did. He not only put words to it before others, he put words to it before his God. He expressed what he was feeling openly and honestly before his God. I think that's also an important thing that we all need to be doing as we go through hard, dark places. Uh, A book I'll often recommend to people, I recommend to all you, I love it, is a book by Ann Weems. She's a poet who wrote Psalms of Lament. What she did was she wrote her own personal Psalms of Lament modeled after the biblical Psalms of Lament. And so it's just a book full of her poetry of kind of her struggling with life, just putting words to it. Putting words to life's realities, the hardships, the blessings, the sightings of God, the expressions and feelings of his absence. She just puts the words out there. She puts the words out there before us, but she also puts the words out there before her God. I think that's a helpful process. Sometimes writing is helpful because it slows us down. It makes us actually think about the words we're saying and remember who we're saying it to. So again, put the words out there. I think the words matter. I tell people, I think it's good to put words to it, but you do need to think sometimes about who you're putting the words out there with. Not everybody is a safe person, right? We do need to to put them out there with people that we think can be with us and hear us and not just always try and make it go away. But we also need to be those kind of people for others. Henry Nouwen, who was very public about his own personal struggles with depression, wrote this about the kind of people that were very meaningful in his life. He said, when we honestly ask ourselves which persons in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that those who, instead of giving much advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a gentle and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, 
and face us with the reality of our powerlessness. And I love that phrase. Who can face us with the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. I think there are times to give advice and there are times to challenge and there are times to teach. But when it comes to depression, I think those times have to grow out of sitting with people in their powerlessness, being with them in the struggle, trying to understand and feel with them and giving them the freedom to feel with you before those words have much meaning. So words, put his feelings to words. But he does more than that. He does more than just put his feelings to words. He also challenges his thinking. He reminds himself of the reality that God is actually present. He doesn't feel like it. Doesn't seem to be true, but he reminds himself again and again, but it is true. He calls himself back to the truth that he does believe, that he does hold to, that he's heard before and he's believed before, even though right now it all seems in question. Three times he asks himself this, why are you downcast, my soul? And then it's followed by this self-talk or this kind of preaching at himself. He says, put your hope in God, for I will praise him, my Savior and my God. Why are you so downcast? And you know how it is when you're going through this time. It's sometimes just like, what is going on with me? Why can't I shake this? But then he says to himself, but this is still true. I will put my hope in God. The day is coming where I will praise him. This is still true. God is still here and God is still a God worthy of praise. I know it to be true. Holds on to the truth. He remembers also the past times that he's gone through. Maybe right now I can't feel God's presence, but I have. I've known it, and he remembers those things, and he calls them back to memory. Verse 8, he says, By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. He remembers those nights where God has been close to him as he's gone through hard times. He, again, reminds himself often of just who God is. And I'll pull you back to those names that he uses to describe God as he speaks of him. He calls God the living God, my Savior, my God, God of my life, rock, stronghold, my joy, and my delight. I feel like he's just saying to himself again and again, this is true. God, this is who you are. You are solid and dependable. God, you are there. God, you do save. God, you truly are a joy and a delight. God, it is you. You are my God. I know it's true. Preaches to himself a little bit. He reminds himself again and again of God's activity and presence, God's love and God's closeness. Even though right now he can't feel it. I think he does what all of us need to do from time to time. He holds on to this rope of truth that he has at other times studied and learned and been taught, and it's there. Sometimes that rope is there, and we don't even... C.S. Lewis talked about this, about being kind of on the edge of a cliff, and the rope's there, and it's nice, and it's wonderful. I like to look at it and talk about how good it is once in a while. But he's talking about in those desperate moments when I reach out and grab hold of that rope, now it's life to me. Now I'm counting every strand Now it matters to me. Is this really true? He has that rope available to him because he has spent time with God and spent time in God's word. We all need that. I think it's very popular today to kind of think of worship. I think especially in American evangelicalism, we probably do it more than some, to to talk about worship as if it's sort of a spiritual Red Bull. You know, Red Bull, the energy drink. It's sort of we all come together and we worship and we get kind of a spiritual kind of pick-me-up. And we know it's going to fade. And then we come back together and we get to pick me up again. And then it's going to fade. And we get to pick me up again and then it's going to fade. And that's kind of the spiritual life. I don't want to completely dismiss that. When I look at the Psalms, I think the Psalms speak to emotion. I think again and again, Scripture calls us to be encouraged, 
to, to feel, to be lifted up and encourage one another. So I don't want to completely dismiss that. But I do want to say, to really truly dispel darkness, we need light. To really walk through some of the hardest, darkest times, we need more than just a pick-me-up. We need solid truth that we can grab hold of and hold on to in those times and remind ourselves of and remind each other of. We need to study God's Word. We need to come together and worship and learn God's Word. We need to personally be studying God's Word because we need those truths to hold on to in those times and to call ourselves back to. That really does matter. Matter of fact, beginning of this psalm, it's called a maskil. Maskil is a verb that literally means uh, to make someone wise or to instruct. So this is a psalm. This purpose was to make wise and to instruct. It's also very emotional, very emotional words. It's poetry. It's music. It speaks to our hearts, to our emotions, to our minds. All of those things are important if we're going to walk through those hard, dark times. Third and finally, he prays. Psalm, whole psalm's a prayer. But he doesn't just talk to God about what he's feeling. He also asks God to intervene. He asks God to act on his behalf. One of the things that's regularly said about me is I'm not good at asking for help. My wife tells me this all the time. I'm not good at asking for help. She's constantly telling me, ask somebody. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be a burden. Uh, You know, I don't want to make them uncomfortable. Well, she's making me uncomfortable. And it's kind of that tension. Do I want to be uncomfortable with her or somebody else? You know, which one do I choose? Ask somebody else. We're the same way a lot of times with God. We are slow to ask. We are slow to go. We feel like somehow we've got to figure it all out and get it all together. And then, God, let's go kind of sweetly say, it'd be nice if you'd support me in this. I think, God, I desperately need, would you please act on my behalf? He identified his deepest need. He thought through it. He knew there were things that needed to change in this situation, but at the very heart of it all, he needed God. He needed to know God was there, to feel God's presence, to be close to him. And he asked for it. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a time of really deep struggle in his own life, in the life of the people he's with. And he writes this, This body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God who comforts the downcast, that's who comforts the downcast, God. God who comforts the downcast, comforted us uh, by comforting us through Titus, And not only by his coming, but by the comfort you had given him. Corinthians, you comforted Titus. Titus then came and comforted us. But I know behind it all was God. Because God is truly the one who comforts the downcast. He understood that. That under it all, it's really God is our hope. And this psalmist seemed to understand that. Not sure, God, where you're at. I can't feel you. I don't know why these hard things are happening to me. Why I feel so alone. But God, my real hope is in you. And he asks again and again and again, God, intervene on my behalf. Act for me. Pull me out of this deep, dark place. Give me life again. Honestly face and express difficult realities with God and others. I think it's important. Remember who God is and what he's done and is doing and what he will do. Remember the truth. Pray to God who is here with us. Ask for his help. All those things, I think, are vitally important things as we walk through dark times hard times, the times that the psalmist described as desperately thirsty and downcast. I think they're important things to do. I don't think this is a psalm that would make a good Christian movie. In the end, it's not all happy and wonderful and life went on and there's nothing wrong. In the end, this life still has some hard times. Things are still difficult. But I think the difficulty and the dark places are different when we realize we're not walking through them alone. They are very different.
I love these words from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Our hope isn't always in finding the answer. Sometimes our answers, and that's wonderful when we can find them. Sometimes our hope is in just knowing that we're not alone, remembering and seeking out the presence of God and drawing close to him. Sometimes others help us to do that. Sometimes we have to go directly to him. But remembering we are not alone. One of the things I find with people I talk to struggling with depression all the time is it is natural to want to kind of pull in our boundaries. If, if life feels overwhelming and dark and just too much, it's natural to say, I need to make my world smaller. Somehow I need to separate from people and from activities and from everything that I do and make my world smaller because it kind of makes sense in your head, doesn't it? If I make my world smaller, my reality smaller, then I can manage it and I can handle it and it'll be okay. I don't think the psalm calls us to that. Matter of fact, I tell people regularly who are trying to do that, the one thing I will guarantee you if you do that your depression will get worse. It is the worst thing you can do. It's not that sometimes there aren't some things you need to step out of or things you need to change, but you need people in your life. You need activities still to stay in your life. Even though they feel overwhelming, don't just pull in. Stay there, but while staying there, look for help. Look for help sometimes medically, sometimes in counseling. Look for the community of God. Absolutely ask your God and seek him out. Stay there, but realize you're not alone. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for the reality of the Psalms. A reality that sometimes is filled with a hostile environment, a situation that's difficult. Uh, Father, with feeling alone in your absence. Father, a place that sometimes just feels like it's hopeless and beyond us. But I'm also thankful, Father, for the Psalms that they remind us that you are there, that you are active, that you love us, you are close by always, even when we can't feel you, that day and night you watch over your children and you care. Father, I thank you, and I pray that you'd help us to live well in those dark times by remembering the God who is with us. In your blessed name, amen. Will you please stand as we respond in worship?